everyone, it's Erin with Tall Ships America, and you are listening to A Bark, A Break, and A Schooner, Walk Into A Bar, a podcast where I get to know the people in our Tall Ships community. A gentle reminder to follow Nick Hardesty at A Bark, A Break, and A Schooner, Shape History, as he explores America's maritime heritage, so you can find him wherever you download and listen to podcasts. This week, we have Captain Andy Ellers, our first guest with an IMDb page, and you might remember him from our mini-episode earlier this season. From sculpture major to sailing master to captain of research vessels with the Applied Physics Laboratory at the University of Washington, this episode has it all. I do want to note in our excitement to talk about his time on Master and Commander, we just dive right into the conversation and forget to even mention the movie at first. So yes, about 40 minutes in, we are talking about Master and Commander, Far Side of the World. So let's go ahead and get into it. Andy, welcome. Well, Captain Andy Ellers, thank you so much for being back on the pod. It is, I'm really looking forward to speaking to you a little bit longer. I'm excited to kind of dive into uh, your history and what you're doing right now. So welcome. Oh, well, thank you very much. Thanks for having me. From the West Coast to the East Coast. Yeah, seriously. Uh, I do have to say, I think that you are the very first guest that I have had in my year and a half of doing a podcast that has an IMDb page. So we can dig into that a little bit later. Yes. And yeah, and you may even have to explain what that is to people, but we'll get to that point because because the IMDb page wound up factoring into my career. (gasps) Did it? Ooh, let's get into it. Okay. All right. No spoilers. Okay, Andy. So if you want to introduce yourself and what your current position is. Okay. um, Andy Ellers, I have been sailing on ships for uh, 35 years now, I guess. Uh, right now, I've done lots of different things, the sail training, passenger cruises, things like that. My principal position for, I think, 14 years now, sort of my go-to regular gig, has been running research vessels for the Applied Physics Laboratory of the University of Washington. Um, but then I supplement that with still doing relief on sailing ships and cruise vessels and other things as well. So why does the applied physics department need a research vessel? Well, this could be... (laughs) You have two minutes, go. (laughs) Oh my God. I'm kidding. Um, Yeah, this this could be an entire separate (laughs) podcast, which I shouldn't be the one to explain because... And I'll shorten it down. The Applied Physics Lab generally is referred to as APL, its initials, APL. So UW APL. Um, The origin of APL actually began in World War II. The U.S. Navy had a lot of research going on, on things you can imagine, like sonar systems. That was the beginnings of that. And... Um, navigational systems for torpedoes and at the end of the war the navy and i'll i'll just really generalize because i don't know the exact specifics of how and why this happened but the navy decided that they didn't want to be completely in charge of all this research stuff that you know it's not their expertise Mm -hmm. so they reached 
across the sound, if you will. There are several big Navy bases here in the Puget Sound region, one in Bremerton, one in, up Hood Canal is where the subs are. Um, and there are some other installations on Whidbey Island. That's where they've got the Naval Air Base. Well, they reached the University of Washington and sort of, and this is where I'm going to generalize, made sort of a cooperative agreement and sort of farmed out the research to this laboratory, which would be managed by the University of Washington. Um, a few big pieces, though, that makes it so strange. So it's a department of the university. Mm -hmm. But it is one of the strangest departments of a university you can imagine because it's a university department that has exactly no students, no classes. It's just a purely research arm. And even though it has physics in the name, it has much less to do with the physics department and physics professors, whatever you want to say, mm -hmm. then it does engineering. So it's, okay. it's much more aligned with the engineering departments, but then within the organization of the University of Washington, if you look at a flow chart and like oceanography that you would think we'd be part of, we've got research vessels right. and, and they're in the school of the environment, which is under science and things like that. And then it flows up to the dean and the president. APL sits on that flow chart way over to one side and it's just got this little dashed line that just goes way up to the, the president of the university. We, we sort of answer to no one. Um, and over the years, we've gotten completely away from this laser focus military marine applications. Oh, okay. um, we do all sorts of marine applications but also non-marine applications. There are people doing um, ultrasonic devices for medicine. Oh, cool. Um, and weather and things like that. Mm -hmm. And within the marine stuff, we've gotten a lot in the last few years into marine energy, like okay. tidal energy generation, mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, and also just water sampling. There's a whole series of weather buoys and water sampling buoys throughout Puget Sound, and off the outer coast, those are all managed by the University of Washington. They're all engineered and created by APL. Okay. And I guess the final piece I'll give is just that a lot of times when oceanographers are going to sea, they'll go to sea and they'll take pieces of equipment to do their research. Mm -hmm. um, APL the engineers in APL and the work that I do principally is developing the equipment, not doing the research. So okay. we will do research mm -hmm. to test them or like I was out yesterday and what I was out doing was taking the boat out. There are these two autonomous um, oceanographic instruments mm -hmm. that are going to be deployed I'm not even sure which ocean those two are going to be put in and they're going to be deployed for months, but to make sure that they're going to run correctly, the people who have engineered these and managed these instruments and this whole autonomous vehicle, they always take them out to calibrate them, to give them a little test run of a day or two. And then, okay, they all check out, they crate them up, they ship them off. I mean, we've had stuff shipped off, you know, to Asia or to Australia. And there they go onto a big ship, a UNOLS, 
research ship, which might be the ship from the University of Washington, but it just as well might be the ship from Woods Hole. Right. Hui right. going out right. and they'll get dropped in the water. And some of these are deployed at sea for months at a time, um, even longer. We've got devices under the Antarctic ice right now, which are from APL design. Um, oh, anyway, so wow. and and so much of it goes <laughs> right over my head. The science <laughs> is just crazy and some of the equipment that comes on board is mind-boggling this is a we've got four or five different research vessels we use the one mm -hmm. i drive the most looks it's based on a limit saner 60 foot long fiberglass hole 60 foot long 20 foot wide big work deck a-frame crane utility winches things like that i'm all set up i can go into a three point more i've got three anchors and three separate anchor winches cool. um it's got all this instrumentation built to it still you know that vessel where was i going with this <laughs> uh, um, expensive equipment on board oh, oh right <laughs> so this this thing was built 15 years ago no this boat was built 12 years ago i think um and it costs like 1.2 million there have been times when on the work deck there's been like three or four million dollars worth of equipment i mean these like <laughs> single items not much bigger than a human right. and they are worth more than the entire vessel and it's like yay and yeah these because some of this stuff i mean special connectors that need to go to thousands of meters depth right right you know, engineering has to get very specialized at that point. Yeah. So I've yeah. had quite quite the education on how to run this equipment, and I know the background to how some of this stuff works, the tidal sure. energy, and but like I say, the the science of it, some of it still just mystifies me, and it's like <laughs> just tell me, and and they will give me like sometimes there will be the funniest little weird challenges. They'll have a thing they bring on board that needs to be towed and they'll come to me and they'll say okay we need to be in more than 75 meters of water in a straight due north or due south line how long of a run could you give us within an hour of where we are right now it's like wow that's quite the riddle <laughs> it's like let's figure that out and so i find well if we could run for 20 minutes and from that start point i could give you a seven mile run in that depth of water it's like uh, okay that'll do you know, okay, okay? <laughs> so you know i i don't even know how to i don't even know what my next question is going to be that's just like this is so <laughs> That just seems like that seems really interesting, totally overwhelming, super nerdy, and uh, and what a fascinating way to spend your days because you know it has taken us how long, Andy, to get this interview? Uh, like four months <laughs> to finally be uh, both of us like able to sit down at the computer, and it it sounds as though there's never a dull moment when it comes to your job, contrary to like, you know, when you say you work for the Applied Physics Lab, all I can envision is uh, a lot of like calculators and <laughs> and a lot of chalkboards, or I guess they use whiteboards now, yep. but in that, you know, in, in our in our going back and forth and trying to schedule these interviews, it's 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 always been one one rather exciting 
a little bit of heart burning. <laughs> when I got started on it from the boat side. Now get back to boats, right? I this know, is yeah, supposed I know. to be a I'm podcast of boats. <laughs> I will say that, yes, I'm off of sailing ships when I'm doing this. But when it comes to boat work, navigation, mm -hmm. and especially boat handling, mm -hmm. oh my God, has this been an education. I'm I mean, sure. yesterday, 12-hour day, and I was off the dock through the ship canal through Seattle, locked out into the sound, went into a marina, picked up some more scientists, went out, you know, got the spots, deployed these instruments, um, held station, went back, recovered those instruments, redeployed those, did that like three more times, and then reversed the whole thing, was back, back into the marina alongside, dropped over those other scientists, went back, locked back in, and then all the way back up the ship canal, back into the home berth. So, you know, in one 12-hour day, I had to maneuver onto a dock or up alongside something mm -hmm. like 20 different times. <laughs> it's, and when I started the job, I was still in big sailing ship mode, which are generally a little awkward mm -hmm. and challenging to maneuver, typically underpowered. Mm -hmm. um, and you've got a big crew, though. Right. So I, I got to this job, and the first time I went to take out one of these boats, I'm expecting, you know two, three crew members and going into the lock. And I now regularly run the boat solo. Like if I'm fueling up, I will yeah. just get it underway by myself, 60 foot boat. I'm like, yeah, yeah I yeah. handle all my own lines, <laughs> go to the fuel dock, tie up. It's nothing. It's, I've become so much more calm and adept at boat handling thanks to this job and and when i got back on sailing ships in relief jobs yeah i i think i'm much calmer about it even though sometimes the crew are like um you know we're, we're here we can help you know <laughs> don't you running all over <laughs> don't, throwing out well or don't you want a helmsman <laughs> yeah right they're used to maneuvering and you know the captain is standing there giving orders and you've got a helmsman and you've got line handlers i'm used to like driving the boat and tying up the boat and right. doing all the navigation simultaneously <laughs> and being the engineer and being the engineer yeah <laughs> so yeah. andy did you have do you have a background in sailing where did you did you grow up sailing how did you how did oh, you boy. find yourself how did you find yourself handling uh, $4 million of equipment in the uh, Pacific Ocean? <laughs> okay, here we go. Here we go. Um, here we go, because this is where the beginning is. This was completely unplanned, out of the blue. Um, I was born and raised in Ohio. Okay. Ne never sailed once. Oh, okay. um, All the way through college, which I also... Um, was in Ohio, a mm -hmm. small school called Denison, small liberal arts school. I went there thinking environmental science, something like that. Then I stumbled into computer science. But by the time I graduated, um, I was a fine arts major and uh -huh. got a degree in sculpture. <laughs> yes, my friend did too. <laughs> yes. So, yeah, um, <laughs> perfect. Um, <laughs> yeah, and you know, people aren't exactly at the jobs fairs. They aren't lining up to hire the sculptors. No, unfortunately. No, unfortunately. <laughs> um, but that was okay because I didn't want to 
just go out and settle into a job. I mean, that's frankly why, and you think of the timing of this, what the multimillionaire I would be now if I had kept my degree in computer science in the <laughs> mid, starting in the mid 80s. Right. <laughs> but um, no, I, I didn't want any of those jobs. So why did I want that career or right. that degree? Anyway, right. so I finished college and wanted to just travel, see the country, but I didn't have the money to just travel and see the country. So mm -hmm. I would just travel, go to a spot where I could live and work. And that would give me a chance. And actually between my junior and senior year, sorry, this is a very long answer. You're getting the whole history. Okay. Between, I'll try and speed along. Between my junior and senior year of college, I had always been fascinated as a kid with Montana. And it goes all the way back to, I remember seeing a film in fourth grade about Montana mm -hmm. and thought Montana was, anyway. so between my junior and senior year, I got a job in Glacier National Park Ooh. being a bus driver tour guide. Okay. And if anyone's ever been to Glacier National Park, those cute little red and black antique buses that go <laughs> up and over to the going to the sun highway, that was me. After my senior year, I had had such a good time the first year, I went back and did it a second time. Love it. Um, second summer, but then this time, the summer ends and winter's coming on. And this will hark back to our first little mini episode that we did before because winter's coming on. I'm in the Rockies, so of course, let's go skiing. Yeah, why not? So <laughs> I wound up going to, um, wound up in Aspen as a um as a city bus driver because that was my that was my work experience why not what what did i have to offer being a sculptor or a bus driver a uh, bus driver um but that gave me a ski pass so i had a whole whole winter there and at the end of that i um i headed back and i'll leave out a couple mini steps here but um <laughs> the big picture here is that i headed back saw my parents in ohio Mm -hmm. Saw some friends there who were still going to school at Denison and then was going to visit some friends who lived in Maine. My parents there in Ohio had for years, I don't know how long, had subscribed to Yankee Magazine, which if some of the listeners do not know Yankee <laughs> Magazine, it's sort of like the New England Reader's Digest. Yes. It's a collection of articles and short stories and poetry and jokes and in my possession today i have the issue still i've saved it so this is may 1984 issue of yankee magazine my parents as i like visit my parents and then i'm heading toward maine they're like oh we're done with this month's issue of Yankee, do you want something to read on the road? They hand me this magazine and I start off toward Maine. And if you find a copy of that magazine, you'll see the cover, the center spread, the whole biggest article in that issue was about the Maine Windjammers. It's <gasps> amazing though. And even like multiple Pages in was a special little box section with the names of every one of the Windjammers and their addresses. Oh and this was so that people reading the magazine, of course, could contact them to become 
passengers. Right, right. I saw that. I saw that list, and I thought, oh, I've never been to Maine. This fits my this fits my strategy of wanting to like see the world and go places I've never been. But I need to find a job. Okay, have never been to Maine. Sounds beautiful. And again, I'm taking a few steps out of here. Some of the traveling around, and but I literally started tracking down these boats and going up to them and visiting them. And I can remember exactly like coming down from Orono and there was one in Belfast at that point, the Savina Beal was operating from Belfast. Okay. And then I got the Camden uh-huh. and this was virtually the first of June. I mean, they had all hired their crews months earlier, right? Right. but, <laughs> but there in Camden, the um god what were they called at that point it was the company it's um run by ray williamson now um but then it was owned and operated by les becks and they were called they were nicknamed the green boats and it was at that time the mercantile the mm-hmm. maddie mm-hmm. and the mistress okay um and ray was even the captain of the mercantile at that point Anyway, they were a little behind. They always were. They were in those days. They were, um, they were a a little less. I, I'm trying to put this in the nicest way possible. Um, they they were just operating on a little more of a shoestring. So their season would start a little later. They would be willing, at the last minute, to hire a guy like me to just. <laughs> do some carpentry and some painting and as part of the deal they would let me live on board the boat right there in the harbor in camden so that gave me a job um they wouldn't pay overtime but they would pay me for every hour and i could live on board and that and this is this will be if as long as you do interviews of sailors this will be a common theme is this put me completely in touch with the grapevine which is in every harbor and between all the ships and if you if you don't know that that whole part of the the fleet because the windjammer fleet in those days there was the one boat in belfast there were five or six i could name them but we don't need to do that right now (laughs) in in camden there was one in rockport and then there were another six or seven in rockland Mm -hmm. and that whole that whole whack of the coast is, you know, 20 miles and yeah. all these boats are clustered there. So it kind of put me in the grapevine. I'm meeting all these different sailors, all the different people who have been hired in and they're getting ready to sail. And some of them have already started trips. And that was in fact a year when, so this is 1984. There was, you know, I'll, I'll put some context to this. There was a big, up sale type event in Halifax that year. And from the main fleet in 1984, the Angelique got underway. They were like one of the first ones underway that year. And they went to that operation sale event. Um, I believe the, um, yeah, the spirit of Massachusetts, not quite done, <laughs> went to Halifax. Okay. I mean, yeah, I remember yeah. stories of like, sheets of plywood covering the main hatch so they could make it in time. This is how good the grapevine was. So 
a week or two has gone by, I'm working there, and I found out, it's not by coincidence I mentioned that boat, um, <laughs> I found out from somebody that there was an opening on the Angelique for a mm -hmm. deckhand. I found that out before the captain found that out. <laughs> and it was to the point that there was, this, there was this guy I knew, and he had been hired to go aboard his deckhand after that first trip. And he told me, yeah, he had trouble. I don't remember the guy's name. But he was going to have to go home because of his family back to Arkansas. Okay. And he said, yeah, I'm going to have to go over in the morning. And um, Or I think he might have even said he was going to go over that evening and talk to Mike Anderson, who is the captain mm -hmm. and owner of the Angelique. And I said, would you do me a favor? <laughs> and he said, what? <laughs> and I said, could you, could you not go over and quit until maybe about – 10 o'clock, 10.30, and he said, why? And he, I said, well, because that's when my coffee break is. So you'll tell him you quit, and I will be like right on your heels saying, hey, do you need a, do you need a deckhand? Because they were going to sail in 24 hours on their first regular trip of the year. And sure enough, on my coffee break, I hustle over there, and I find the captain, and I say to Mike, who is now a very good friend of mine, um, and I said to him, I hear you've got an opening. And he said, that's very funny. I just heard that too. <laughs> and he said, do you have any experience? And I said, no. And he was just like, you know, processing what kind of a crew member I'm going to make. And Angelique's kind of famous for the fact they've got a piano on board. And they've got a, um, he liked to, he liked to hire musicians. I don't know why I'm adding this detail. It's just no, kind of a I, funny I, part. I, I, and he was just kind of, and he's like, do you play any musical instruments? I said, yes. And he said, oh, great, what? And I'm like, the tuba. And he's like, oh, no, that's not what I'm talking about. <laughs> not many sing-alongs with a tuba. <laughs> did, um, did you have your tuba with you? A few years later, I actually did bring it on board just to complete the, the, complete the joke, to close <laughs> that loop. Um, Andy. <laughs> but... Apparently, and, and here's the other kind of behind the scenes that I learned later, was that between that guy quitting and me showing up, um, Mike had said to his chief mate, he's like, oh, God, this guy just, just quit on me. We need another deckhand. And she's like, where are you going to get anyone um, with experience at this point. And he said, yeah, the experience doesn't matter. I just need somebody big, strong, and dumb. Um, <laughs> and I figured that, you know, I had at least two or three of those qualities. <laughs> so I'm the next guy who comes loping up his gangway and he just looks at me and he goes, okay, here we go. <laughs> so this was it. This was, I'm gonna get to see a part of the um, world I hadn't seen, experience something new. I start sailing. I can't say that I was, yeah, I brought no experience, right. but I was a relatively quick learner and I'm just was interested in it. Yeah, yeah. And this is something that I really think I learned from Mike that very first summer. And you've heard me say this before on other Zoom calls and mm -hmm. meetings and things like this is he became a mentor. And it wasn't, it wasn't like 
there's a mentorship program and this kid has shown up to do this. Right. Um, it was just that I got a board and I wasn't just, okay, give me a checklist of what to do. Okay, I'm done. I'm going to go sit in the sun. Right. This was, I was, okay, these are the things we're doing. Why? Mm -hmm. And how do we do them? And he just saw that I was interested in stuff and he was just for his own interest in entertainment, maybe. I don't yeah. know. Yeah. He, you know, he shared what he knew. And whenever I, and I feel like I was professional enough to know how and when to ask questions. You know, mm -hmm. I don't bull right in past right. passengers and interrupt, but I would show interest and I would ask things and I would pick things up and, Anyway, so that, so I did well, or well enough <laughs> that season. Um, there some other friends of mine, in fact, Dave McGinnis, who now owns and operates Manitou, mm -hmm. and, his sis, and his sister Martha were on that very first week that I sailed, and they told me afterwards that they, like, they, to each other, they were passengers that week. They both wound up as crew on Angelique as well. And they kind of shared with each other. It's like, oh my God, this guy Andy, he's never gonna make it. I mean, in that in that first week, I like, I I I wound up catching some baggy wriggles on fire. I um, I I fell overboard. Um, well, it was the okay. It, maybe it was the second week. I don't know. But it was Fourth of July. There were sparklers, okay. and I tried okay. to get sparklers up. That was just tied them to the flag halyard. Don't tie sparklers to a flag halyard. Oh That's a bad idea. Sorry. I mean, there's one lesson you can take away from this podcast. It's don't, don't tie, tie sparklers. sparklers to a flag halyard, especially on a ship with baggy wrinkles. Yeah, don't try this at home. Um, so then... So that season has wrapped up, oh. and that year, boy, I'm just, I'm going to do call-outs of all sorts of historic, um, I'm going to guess that you've never even heard of a sailing ship named Dayspring. Dayspring? No. Yeah, she was this beautiful um, square topsail schooner, which was built, which was having its very first season um, in Maine. They were trying to do something different instead of like packing the boat with 25, 35 people. Right. They wanted to run almost more of a yacht thing with 12 passengers. Anyway, and they were going to do a full year. They were going to do summers on the main coast and winters in the Caribbean. Nice. And like big ships and yachts, it's like to get from one to the other, you need some extra crew because all mm -hmm. of a sudden you're going to sail around the clock. Yep, I was in that grapevine, and they weren't going to pay a cent. They weren't going to even, you know, give airfare home or anything, especially to a completely brand new, have only been sailing for three months guy, but <laughs> they needed this big, strong, and dumb. Yeah, um, yeah. So I got aboard Dayspring in that September, October, I can't quite remember, mm -hmm. and we sailed... Camden to Newport, Newport to Bermuda, Bermuda to the Caribbean. That um, kind of nice. So, <laughs> again, it's like part of the world I'd never seen. Like, 
open ocean, deep ocean on a sailing ship. And I even did a trip or two with them as they were starting to get, um, get themselves going in the Caribbean. Yeah, little footnote I'll throw in here was they wound up doing okay through that season. I was then off the boat. Mm-hmm. Um, and it was on their transit back north that uh, the vessel started taking water faster than they could keep up. And um, yeah, total loss. It oh. sank at sea. Oh, um, everyone rescued. Oh, okay. um, a, a, a cargo ship got to them in time to um, actually stabilize them with some, they like rafted the day spring up next to this cargo ship. And then a Coast Guard cutter got there. And I've actually seen the footage from that Coast Guard cutter, the footage of the day spring disappearing from sight. Yeah, it's, oh, you don't, you don't play in this industry for very long before you start knowing of ships and even much worse people who haven't made it. I mean, it's, it's, yeah, not wanting to type. Take the podcast to a dark place, but, no, but um, it's, yeah, it's a reality. It's, it's still a dangerous. It's still a dangerous career. There's weather and ocean, and there's a lot that there's a lot that's yep. predictable, as uh, we learned in our last episode with Joe Sankowitz with uh, with Noah. But there's an awful yep. lot that is that can take you by surprise, even though even though the sailors that I know are do not like surprises <laughs> and over prepare. <laughs> And the safety is paramount, but you're absolutely right not to not to take it to a dark place. But it's it's true; it happens, and we learn from it. So was that kind of it? It was that summer. It was those few months, and you were hooked. And no, it's the funny thing is that so I'm in the Caribbean, needed my next gig. There was a yacht this time that just needed to be delivered to Florida. They needed a couple extra hands to take this yacht to Florida mm-hmm. to be sold. So I jumped on that, had an interesting little cruise through the Bahamas. Mm-hmm. By that time, it was coming on to the next year. Mike from the Angelique got in touch with me and said, you know, do you want to do a second summer? It's just in another month or two, we're going to start fitting out. So I signed up for a second summer. I was going to, you know, repeat myself. And it sort of went like that for a couple years. And here's the funny thing is I was still thinking of sailing as just a way to move around. Yeah. That's how they get you, Andy. That's how they get you. Just as a job. I even got to the point into my, um, Angelique started doing, um, spring and fall day sailing in Boston. And there I was Boston. I've now got, enough time under my belt that I could walk down the street to the Coast Guard and sit for my first captain's license. And still, I swear, (laughs) I got my first captain's license still not even thinking that this was a career. Mm -hmm. This was still just, I'm going to keep traveling, but you know, and in those days, a captain's license was free. Oh, really? There was no paperwork fee. There was no testing fee. So, yeah, I, I, have, I have told a number of people, I think even on um, Asta, I keep saying Asta, I know, okay. I still have, Tall Ships America, um, I've told them on calls before that I think if the fees were in place that we have now, 
to get a Coast Guard license, I wouldn't have. Oh, uh, yeah. Because I'm, I'm not saying they were so onerous, but at that point, it just wasn't in my head that I was right. going to be a captain. Right. I right. just did it because it was something extra I could have. Just like because of driving the buses, I had a commercial driver's license. So right. if a job came along and I needed that, great. I'd have a captain's license in my back pocket. Or yeah. I could at least flash it at somebody and say, this kind of proves I've got some experience on boats. Okay. But anyway, yeah, we better start fast-forwarding a little bit or <laughs> we will be here for six or eight hours. Uh, was there a ship that you spent the most time on? Um, for, for lack of a better answer, uh, <laughs> no. <laughs> um, I, once, once I got going and sort of my first, I, there was a point there Then I started with my captain's license, started running some yachts. Mm-hmm. And then I, the first time I was captain of a big boat, it was a uh, relief captain on Clipper City doing day sails. The first time I was the master, mm-hmm. which to me means that not only are you the captain, you also have to do the paperwork. <laughs> yeah. um, <laughs> a fun fact, a little known fact about being a captain. Most of your time yes. is spent doing paperwork. <laughs> well, it, it harks right back to where you are sitting right now because my first you know, master was of Providence. Oh, get out! And I had her for two years. Um, And that was kind of the beginning for me of of this. I had it in my head that I didn't want to get bored. This will will touch back a little to our last episode as well. (laughs) When I admitted, when I admitted that I'm a little scattered that way i i like the strange and new mm-hmm. and i had this sort of in my head i don't think it was a you know it wasn't like my motto but if i try and state it i always wanted to be on a new boat and when i say yeah on a different boat but mm-hmm. even like different type of boat sure in a different type of business in a different place geographically yeah, makes sense. So, so I started really jumping around. Uh, I think after Providence, boy, I'd have to write down my whole timeline. <laughs> I think at that point, there there's some other boats there, but I wound up um, running the Homer Dixon, which is what became Manitou okay. on Lake Champlain. Okay. Um, I was doing some other boats in the Caribbean. I jumped out to do um, Californian. I ran her for a few seasons, mm-hmm. um, a big formative boat for me that really got me back, even though I had done a number of blue water trips already, uh, Tully Moore was oh, kind of a oh. big, yeah, another one that, I yeah. mean, she's still around, but yeah. renamed completely different now. Yeah. I was just, um, yeah, man, I was just telling my girlfriend the stories of how Tully Moore came to be. Mm-hmm. And Oh my God. It would be like an almost five minute monologue for me to tell you how I first worked on Tullymore when I was living in Vermont. And, and, okay. and yet my job at the university here in Seattle mm-hmm. came about because of Tullymore. 
because Tullymore was fit out here, and when I flew from here to to Micronesia, at that point it was in the Marshall Islands, um, the captain on board was Dan Quinn. Dan Quinn, because Tullymore was fit out here in Seattle, mm-hmm. had gotten to know Seattle, had settled back here. I, because of the girlfriend at that time was a chef. She got a job in Seattle. I come to Seattle and I'm like, oh, Captain Dan Quinn lives in Seattle. I hook up with him, start to meet the other people who helped fit out Tolly Moore when it was fit out here a couple years earlier in Seattle. One of those guys is the guy who manages the boats for the university. Uh, and, okay. and it took like 10 years for all the connections to be made mm-hmm. until I'm giving him a ride home from a baseball game because of this <laughs> connection. Right. And he said, so you've got your license. Would you like to do some relief work? Yeah. <laughs> I run these boats. And Yay. yeah, it all, it, it all loops around. So Tolly Moore is in there. Um, in When I was running Providence, there's, there's this whole big history of providence and the roads and they the organizations which originally built them mm-hmm. this, this isn't exactly a dark chapter but this is an awkward chapter they <laughs> they they were built and there there were some kind of hard feelings and they had spent even though they sort of had gotten initiated let's say sure the building of both of those replicas by some of the same people the organizations wound up completely schisming. Well, it was during my time on Providence that those two ships actually started working together again. And oh. we a few times did sea battles. Oh, and, really? and this and this got me in touch with <laughs> the Rose. Yeah. And and Captain Bailey. So yeah. which is a wonderful segue. Thank you for teeing that well, up. <laughs> yes, and you know where this is going. So I was, so I wound up working with him. He brought me back as crew, um, and then I wound up. He really assembled quite this all-star team for the year that the Rose went to Europe. So this mm-hmm. is 1996, and that put us all really in the loop. So that was when Richard and I sailed together the most. Was that Europe trip? A couple more years further into the future, I've been off running other boats. Hollywood buys the Rose. <laughs> right. And he needs to, again, put together this, you know, he just pulls out the, yeah. In those days, probably pulled out a Rolodex. We didn't yeah, quite have yeah. the uh, databases. <laughs> um, so he brought me on as one of the people along with Tony Arrow yes. and a bunch of other people yes. to get the boat ready in Newport to Mm -hmm. get it to the West Coast. And it was all very strange. And at that point, the Rose had been in um, Bridgeport, run run by uh, the same people that own Captain's Cove. Oh, really? Captain's Cove Seaport. Oh, that had been Rose's home base for 10, 12 years, probably. Took it to Newport for a haul out for, um, actually repowered it even. I mean, when you start to play with Hollywood, Hollywood has budget, like, I can't remember, I think she had, when she was first powered, when she was going for subchapter H, uh, what am I saying, H, R, when she went subchapter R, I feel like she had a, again, somebody will correct me, 
I feel like she had a pair of 871s, which was still like way underpowered. They repowered her, I think, with a pair of caterpillars. Okay. Um, so she had better, better power and actual much, much better bilge pumping scheme and pumps. <laughs> and she was getting whole new suits of sails once she got there, but we had to get her there. Mm-hmm. And we took off, and that was that was a crazy trip. What would that be? That would be fall '99, maybe. And you went through um, the Panama Canal with the with yeah the through the Panama Canal. Cool. Um, no, that must be 2000. Anyway, you don't care. We went from Newport, Puerto Rico. From Puerto Rico, we we're heading for Panama, and one of the most exciting. 60 seconds of my life she took an especially bad roll with an especially big gust of wind and and we lost um it all began well it turns out later it began that we didn't realize that there was rot and a break in her main topmast and that made the rig twist in a kind of s-shaped way that she shouldn't right and the main to gallant broke and that meant that the main Tagalog sail flew forward, slapping downwards on the braces for the Ford Tagalog. And when it hit both braces simultaneously, it then pulled aft and broke the Ford Tagalog yard in half. And we were still in fairly big seas blowing along in the Caribbean and night, night was falling. That's a whole nother story. Um, <laughs> But we, but we what wound up. What did you do, Andy? You can't just. <laughs> what happened? <laughs> we, we we got down all the broken bits and okay. we stabilized things as best we could. And when we got in Panama, we hired a big ass crane to take out what we didn't need, and we did the rest of the trip as a. There are photographs of her, and it's insane because she's got. Her mizzen and mizzen top mist, mm-hmm. only her at the main, all she's got is her lower. Oh. <laughs> and on the four, I guess we didn't have the four to gallant, so it must have just been four and four top mist. So it, yeah, it, we, we nicknamed it the, you know, you've got barks, barkentines. We called her the reckentine. <laughs> but, we, but we had some squaresoles, and there were times we had everything set that we could. The whole movie was going to be done in the book. The ship would be in Ensenada, Mexico. Mm-hmm. But to do, finish doing work, repair, replace, upgrade her for the movie, um, she was to go to S- San Diego. So we came all the way up to San Diego. And at that point, I was like, bye bye. That was what I was hired for, was right, just right. to transit it around. And there were some things in the planning, the really early pre-production that turned out not to be true. Well, and see, part of that was that they thought that they were building an entire replica of the Rose in a water tank, uh-huh. right? So it's like a stage set. Right. Um, that's got no bottom because it's in only like some much of that tank is only like five, six feet deep. Oh, okay. Okay. So it's on this armature 
but but it's a full size ship anyway. It's so full size, they build a full size. Oh rig? yeah, oh yeah, fully rigged. Uh, no to gallants, but everything else. I the, what I was referring to when I said that they didn't quite, you know, what they had planned wasn't working out. They originally had thought, and what the planners had said was that they would only be sailing, and I'll put quote marks around that, sailing one ship at a time. So either the cameras and stars and everyone would go to Ensenada and get on the Rose, which was playing the role of the surprise in the movie, or in Rosarito, Mexico, which is about an hour's drive north, and where the principal movie studio is, and Mm -hmm. this fake ship in the pond, they would be on that ship. And they thought we could, they would only ever, on any given day, there would only ever be one ship or the other ship being used. And very quickly, as they started looking at it and started thinking about all the, and if we want to go down the rabbit hole of some of the technical stuff, all the second unit work as well, which are all those like wide shots and things like that, they realized that they were going to, on a lot of days, they were going to be using both ships. So they originally thought Richard, the regular crew of the Rose, that'd be fine. Because when they're they're on the Rose, they're on the Rose. When they aren't going to take the Rose out, that whole crew would pile in cars, vans, whatever, would drive the hour north to the studio, and they would populate that fake ship, and they would sail that fake ship. But if they were going to do both at the same time, they needed more people. Right. All the way up to they needed like actual like captain's mate's leadership. Right, right. So, and they also were realizing that they had all these extras. I mean, there was a Rose crew of maybe 20. And historically, and just for the sake of getting the look of a crowded ship, extras milling about smartly right. and not all just. <laughs> Right. Ending there with a dumb look on their face. Right, right. Um, they needed to run some real training for all of their, for the cast, for the named cast, but also for all the extras. Right. So anyway, I don't think I was home even a month. And they were calling me and saying, we want to hire you back to come down and train everyone mm-hmm. and also be the person who's running the second ship. Like typically because Richard was there, so he would be running and you think it's a fake ship, but it doesn't know it's a fake ship. (laughs) It still has like full size sails that you fully set in the wind blowing off the Pacific. So there are times when that ship, I mean, you've got all the safety problems, if not more, Right. Because you've got all of that, you know, you think about setting the sails on a ship in a shipyard, you know, yeah, it could yeah. tip itself right over. Yeah, yeah. And and they had hydraulics that would make the thing pitch and roll. And we would be sailing that anyway. So they recognized they needed the safety of somebody to like be there and manage all that and keep an eye on the safety of it. And everything just keeps cascading. I mean, I got involved and so many things were happening parallel. One was just that the studio again realized even with the best training, 
their extras are still going to look like extras. Right. So they realized that they needed not only the entire Rose crew, but every other able-bodied traditional rig sailor they could lay their hands on, and they were going to dress all of them as extras as well. Oh, my God. Because when, you know, when in the movie a shout goes out and people need to run aloft, right. extras are going to go over to the rigging and begin climbing <laughs> up the rig. And, you know, tall ship sailors right. will scamper. literally scamper up the rig. Um, so everyone, including, like, there were at least half a dozen women in Rose's crew, they mm -hmm. were all dressed. I mean, hair mm -hmm. got tucked up under hats and yeah. they got dressed. And the people who didn't look the part as well certainly would be put deeper in a shot further from the <laughs> sure. camera. Um, sure. But again, we're running both ships. So I don't know if maybe Tony or somebody ever, he was really keeping track of personnel at one point. We grabbed... I remember Ian McIntyre, who at that point owned and operated Hawaiian Chieftain. Oh he just like up and like that. There was this point where all of a sudden we needed all these different ships going at the same time. We needed all these different sailors from the Bay Area. Like this van shows up, yeah. and open <laughs> open up another box of sailors. It was you know here's another eight ten people. Get them in costume. Do their hair. Right. Um, and it was, yeah, it was just, just so crazy. Well, then on my end of things, I'm involved and they're pulling me into meetings about, you know, they ask my comments on the script and what's going on here and what's going on there. And very early on, one of the things I stumbled on was that no one making the movie realized what a difference there was sailing a ship in different conditions. Well, right. That makes sense, they, though. Yeah, that makes yeah. sense. If you don't know, you don't know. Or if you're, yep. you've never been sailing, you're just kind of like, it's always sails up straight ahead. Well, <laughs> more than that, it's all sails up. Right, it's like right, right. Some, someone who, who's got a little sloop that they take out of the marina and they go for day sails, yeah, they might reef the mainsail. <laughs> they might, you know, put up a different jib, period. But this had... Is it heavy weather? Is it short weather? Is it, um, is it in that movie, there's periods when they are becalmed. They want everything set. And mm -hmm. Rose was re-rigged to take stuncil, something she never had before. Really? I'll have to watch um, it again. I didn't even I yeah. didn't think I noticed. And then in storms, you're completely shortened down. You're reefed. So I came up, I had, I wound up making like the continuity Bible. Mm -hmm. which mm -hmm. was sort of, and for the movie people, they sort of know this as a character thing. If you have a star, a character in the movie, the costume department, the makeup department, the hair department, the props department, they all take notes of exactly what they're doing in scene 61. Because you don't necessarily film in order, or you may have a break and then all of a sudden you come on to scene 62 and you need to make sure they're wearing exactly the same thing. Their hair is done exactly the same way. Mm -hmm. So we had to do the exact same thing for the ship. So I made this Bible that was like 
ah, geez, I don't know, 40, 50 pages long, which was exactly what the sale plan was Mm -hmm. from scene such and so to scene such and so. And then as part of the action of the movie, there's lots of sale handling. Right. So it's like, and then in scene, whatever, you know, scene 32, they are shortening sale or they need to add sale. So, you know, that page of this book. So then the camera department, the editorial department, everybody got copies of this. Mm-hmm. So they would know we're going to be filming down the deck. Are the courses set, right? Yeah. So that's going to be in view. Whether or not the topsails are set, they don't care, but they needed something to refer to to make sure that, and sometimes it's like, we want to put a camera here. Oh, there's going to be a sail in the way of that. Camera can't be there. This all got much more complicated because I'm talking about two ships, right? right? The the Rose was playing the surprise and the tank ship. Mm-hmm. That's what we called tank, water tank ship was <laughs> sure. the second one. <laughs> right. Um, there are two more. There were actually four different entities playing the surprise. The third was, and this was like one of my best plums of the entire thing, was <laughs> there was a miniature, a one-sixth scale. So it's not that miniature. It, yeah, it like yeah. more than filled a boat trailer. Um, okay. I've got photographs of myself standing on this surprise in Wellington, New Zealand. The miniature work was all done by the people who did Lord of the Rings. Wet Out Workshop. Cool. So that's the third one. And then the fourth one was CGI. Oh, okay. There was some computer animated, computer generated. So those, there are times when you're cutting from, you know, the edit goes from live action on the rows to live action on the tank ship to a shot of a CGI generated to a shot of the miniature in very fast order. So everybody needed to literally be on the same page, be on the same page of this continuity book. So everybody had the same sales up and the sales were all braced in the same way. We're on a starboard tack from like scene 100 to scene 120, whatever. (laughs) It's like the the sales couldn't just randomly be back and forth. Yeah. Even that they didn't, They, they were doing a movie with square rig ships and nobody or the majority of them hadn't processed that square soles, that the yards don't stay perpendicular to the center line of the ship the whole time. They had right. no idea that they, a lot of people didn't realize that their sails would pivot <laughs> and that, yeah. that, would, yeah. that would look significantly different scene to scene if they right. like got it backwards and it was jumping around. So then it just went on and on. So the editors started calling on me. So my job just exploded. I actually even got a raise. Um, (laughs) um, And I was just like this go-to consultant. Yeah. Sometime later when they got to the credits, when it got time to like program the little words that show up, they asked me, it's like, so what do we call you? It's like you had a lot of different jobs. And what I asked for and they gave me, and I just loved it dearly because of the historic context, is in the movie you'll see I'm called the sailing master. Mm -hmm. 
And in the movie, there's a character named Mr. Pugh, and he's the sailing master. The sailing master in the 19th century and the 18th century was a role on board. He wasn't a watchstander. He was in charge of oversight of the sails and rigging. So the bosun and sailmaker would answer to him. He was also in charge of the training of the cadets who were on board. So the sailing master had this sort of oversight and training role. And it's like, well, yeah, that's what I, that's what I was. And it fits in movie making because there's this tradition of using the word master Mm -hmm. so that the guy teaching everyone how to fence with their swords. That's the sword master. And the guy in charge of making people fall down safely, that's the stunt master. And the guy in charge of anything handled is the prop master. Mm -hmm. So yeah, sailing master. Yeah, it makes perfect sense. Master and commander, though, of course, is iconic. And I do have to ask you how it was working with Russell (laughs) Crowe. The movie holds up. I watched it recently and I hadn't seen it in years, actually. It must have been have been like 15 years but i was like it was just as good as i remember it it absolutely holds up and it's a delight trying to see who's in the background and see if i recognize anyone and i stuck around for the credits and i recognized most of the names i was like oh my god like (laughs) oh my god they must have been like 12. the but i did want i my one of my questions like what was he like is it true he went up in the rigging and played the violin Those those are yes and yes, not simultaneously. <laughs> but, um, okay, a couple, I mean, the short answer is yes. I find him, found him to be super down to earth, really enjoyed him. He was very generous. He was, um, he, he respected my time. Just the fact that he was, Engage, and I don't even want to claim to understand his process or whatever it is. But (laughs) that's okay. (laughs) When we were well, but this is my understanding, right? In pre-production, he's like getting oriented to all this, and he's Mm -hmm. getting trained for all this. Mm -hmm. He's working with his dialect coach to um, to change his phrasing and his intonation to more closely speak in a Dorchester accent. Okay. Because supposedly Jack Aubrey was, that was the accent. And, you know, and he was definitely not Australian, which Russell's natural. He was going to be seen, you know, so you were going to hear him talk. Right. He was going to be seen on camera playing the violin. Mm -hmm. So he was learning to play the violin. Oh my gosh. He was... You know, he had done action movies before, but he had never fenced before mm-hmm. with an 18th century British Navy cutlass. And right. that was a different set of movements. Right. And again, right. you're going to see that. Great. So you understand that. But he also, we had several weeks of me going every day and having lessons with him about how to sail the ship. <laughs> and you were never, especially in in that period, and to be authentic, you were never going to see him sail the ship. Right. But he knew that that character, Jack Aubrey, 
had grown up sailing the ships. Mm -hmm. From in the books, they refer mm -hmm. to the fact that he was a cadet and mm -hmm. he had grown up on the ships. He had worked his way through roles as mate. And he just felt that he needed to be comfortable. He needed to be able to walk up the ship mm -hmm. as dozens of people around him are handling lines and doing things. And he couldn't look like a guy who didn't know what was going on. Right, right. So even though you would never literally see him handle a line, set a sail, trim a sail, anything, he needed to know all of that. So he wanted that background. I know we're going long here, but if you could bear with me, one of the... Absolutely. So we're having one of these little sessions in his trailer, which is right on the lip on next to the pond, the, mm -hmm. the mm -hmm. pond next to the fake ship. And I knew the riggers, Jim Barry from there in Rhode Island and others mm -hmm. were rigging the ship. Um, and I knew when they were taking their lunch break. And we had been working with this little tabletop model I had of square soles and things. Okay. And I'm like, okay, um, we've got a chance here. Do you just want to go out? Because he had walked aboard just the deck. And I'm like, but do you want to just go ahead and climb around? I've got harnesses. You know, I had one of the riggers leave me a couple harnesses. Great. And he's like, absolutely. Game for it. Take him on board. Show him how the harnesses work. Clip in. We climb aloft. <laughs> I'm up by the... Um, and, and yes, we went up and around the futtocks. We did not use the lubber hole. Okay. Good for you. <laughs> Well, I mean, you, I expect him, I don't. <laughs> right. And we get up there and I'm talking to him and, and I'm, so I'm standing like on the courtyard. I'm like, so this is the foreyard. And, mm -hmm. you know, and remember we're talking buntlands. So these are buntlands. And I'm just like giving them all that. At some point I look over my shoulder and the executive producer of the entire movie <laughs> is standing some ways away very much. Um, I don't know if I'd call it a glare or a scowl, um, but definitely a look of displeasure. Hands, hands on hips, looking at me with his star up there. And this is Duncan Henderson, really nice guy. Right. But he, this took him by surprise. Apparently, I should have cleared this uh, at the very least. Um, <laughs> and I, I acknowledged this to Russell. I said, I said, oh, I maybe, you know, I should have arranged this a little better. It looks like uh, Duncan's maybe not too happy about this. <laughs> and he goes, yeah, maybe not. And I said, <laughs> and I said, oh, man, if I get you hurt, I'm out of a job. And Russell does this like brilliant. He just looks at me with that little sparkle he's got in his eye. And there's this pause. And he goes, mate, if you get me hurt, we're all out of a job. <laughs> <laughs> and I was like, oh, great. That really lightens up the pressure. <laughs> like, Jesus. <laughs> yeah, thanks. Oh, Andy, what an experience, though, Andy. This, um, I couldn't imagine. I love hearing all about the minutia that went into it. I really genuinely do because you look at it and it's, of course it's seamless. You don't notice any of that. And it's a credit to 
to everyone on the movie that you that you don't that it's just so seamless. Um, but I did have a question, and I know we're we are we do need to we do need to kind of wrap it up. But um, I did have a question: how that was different. Uh, Master and Commander was different from your experience on uh, Black Sails on the series on Stars. Were you? I know I did see that. I mean, you didn't work on the entire series, but I'm just wondering what you when you did work. Was it mostly CGI? Was there an actual real ship there, or much more of it was computer? Black Sails had no real ships. Oh, bummer. Yeah. Um, they had several smaller ships mm-hmm. that were in sort of small pools of water, sure. so they could they could do some things with it, but um, and they also, none of the larger ships, and this is where CGI has gotten so much better. The thing with black sails that I find the most amazing is none of the real, none of the large ships that you see on black sails um, had any upper rig. So every time you see, as a camera pulls back a little bit yeah. and you see people on deck yeah. And there are just the masks going all the way up through topmasts and to gallons and all mm-hmm. the sails set. Mm-hmm. It's like none of that was there. That's oh, incredible. They actually are able to stitch in and they are able to extend the masting to put and hybrid sort of morph together. I, sure. I'm using the wrong words here. Um, and extend the rig so that they had real what's called practical actual mm-hmm. rig that you standing there you could put your hands on right that was there right but then at a certain point it turns into stuff that is virtual is oh, not wow. there at all um yeah so that, that was it was a great experience in that that got me to all of their filming took place in south africa so i got oh. two trips to south africa out nice. of it nice when they started some of the critique especially, you know, commenters online, things like that with black sales, especially in the first season was not much pirating in this show about pirates. It's like they aren't on the ships much, but this was the thing. They had the budget. They were able to make this beautiful back lot town Mm, of, you know, Nassau. Um, And they had a couple, well, every season that went along, they added more ships and they added more ship work and every season has more and more ship work to the set place that the, um, the third season um, was, they already had planned some very big storm scenes and things like this. Mm -hmm. And they knew they were going to be doing a lot more ship handling. And in fact, I'm going to guess this might be where a question is coming this is why I got hired there is they did the whole first two seasons with almost no experience on board. Mm -hmm. um, No consultants really telling them much about what, what should be done or nobody just looking at things and previewing scripts and saying, that's not what they'd say. And they realized that with these new sets, they were going to get into much more sailing and and this will be great. Multiple callbacks here for you. Um, this, this loops a lot of things together is that 
they, in their meetings, when they were working on scripts and things like that in that first two season, and when they were starting to conceptualize where the story would go for this third season, they use Master and Commander as a reference. Oh. And filmmakers do this all the time. It's not, mm -hmm. they're not plagiarizing. They're just going, you know, kind of the way there was that camera move, or you know how it felt in that storm, the way it was really dark and, you know, and you kind of lost whatever. They were using Master and Commander as this touchstone, right. as a thing to try and emulate or something right. like that. And here they are in a meeting saying, God, we really do need to get somebody who knows more about these ships. Right. And one of the production assistants sitting off to the side with his laptop on online mm -hmm. pulls up IMDB, <laughs> the International Movie Database, pulls up Master and Commander, scrolls down, finds Sailing Master, and... And at that point, my name, my last name was even hyphenated. So it was Andrew Ray Ellers. Yep. This was one of the strangest things that, I mean, it's just comic that they then, this really loops everything together. So they Google my name, which mm -hmm. at that point is a very unique name. And what pops up, but my listing in the directory at the Applied Physics Laboratory in <laughs> University of Washington with an email address. Uh -huh. They email me, and the first line of the email, honest to God, said, I'm not sure if you're the Andrew Ray Ellers we're looking for. Uh, there's only one. And at that point, I was doing relief work on a boat in Alaska. So I just mm -hmm. came into Juneau. There's no cell coverage. There's no internet when you're out in Southeast. Come into Juneau, go to the public library, log in. I get this right. email and that's how they tracked me down and how they wound up giving me a job. Oh, Andy, I like it. I like all the loops. We closed, we closed all the loops. We brought it full circle. I yep. think that might be the most perfect place to end this interview. So the photos of the ships are available online. If you go, I think it's a Fox studio is where the, the, in the, the big tank is. And so they have a lot of like um, promotional, uh, like nice right. promotional photos. So I did see the little mini one. I mean, you're absolutely right. I mean, it's it is mini, but or well, it's it's not mini, but <laughs> anyway, well, yeah, it's, that it's really cool. It's really yeah. That neat. whole that whole studio is mind blowing. It was all it built for Titanic. I was just gonna say. I was like, yeah. yeah I, I, how dirty is the water though? Ugh. That's a different story. Thank you. This was an absolute delight. I am so glad we were finally able to uh, to get each other on the on the same Zoom together. It has been too long since we since we had spoken. So uh, this was a real pleasure. So thank you so much. Well, you bet, Aaron. Thank you so much. And my offer still stands. When you are ready to have the tables turned, I really do think that that your audience is demanding an interview of Miss <laughs> Short. Right. <laughs> we, we want inquiring minds want to know Erin yeah, Short. <laughs> a bark, a brig, and a schooner walk into a bar is a Tall Ships America production. The music provided by Kebab Studios. You can find us in all the usual places, Twitter, Instagram, Facebook, at Tall Ships America, and on our website at tallshipsamerica.org. Send us your sea stories or drop us a line at manager at tallshipsamerica.org. 
As always, be sure to support your local tall ship.